Welcome to a new episode of Lenashek's Radio. I am your host, Robby, and I'm joined today by Yoni and Lori. Hey. Hello, hello, folks. Uh, in today's episode, uh, we talk with Erin McElroy, who is uh, an activist and scholar in the broad field of housing justice and critical geography, uh, and is also a co-founder of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. This episode, we will talk about Erin's work, activist work in the Bay Area and San Francisco and uh, her work in Romania, uh, while tackling theoretical and practical issues as how she experienced them uh, during her work uh, relating to critical geography, uh, feminism, decolonial theory, and varied many other intersections of emancipatory struggle. While uh, while this description was definite, woefully incomplete, I still hope you enjoy the episode. It's going to be a great episode. Sadly, I couldn't make it on time for the recording, so I had to sit this one out. But uh, we'd like to thank, uh, as always, Sofia Zadar for the wonderful music we used for the intro and outro to the episode. Also, we'd like to thank Zumfi. Uh, who sadly we forgot to mention uh, last time for the sludge metal, desert metal, let's call it sloth metal riffs uh, he wrote for us, uh, as well as the one and only only uh, Mr. Greku for uh, the fantastic thumbnail and artwork he did for this episode. Make sure to... to Check uh, his stuff out, his art and collages and uh, digital artwork on his Facebook page. And as always, we used sound bites and music from Kevin McLeod's uh, website and platform. Listen to them. Loves. Children of the night. What music they make. My name is Erin McElroy. I'm one of the co-founders of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, which is a data visualization, digital cartography, and multimedia collective that's been documenting gentrification and resistance struggles in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now also in New York and Los Angeles. I'm also a postdoc at NYU where I'm studying property technology and the different surveillance technologies being used by landlords to profile and track tenants. And um, I've spent quite a bit of time in Romania where I have gotten to meet you all over the last several years as well, helping out with the Fecitele and some other groups there. The pleasure was ours to meet you. Likewise. Okay, well, let's start then. So I think uh, it would be correct to say that you have a background in critical geography and maybe that your approach is informed by feminist and decolonial studies. Yeah. Let's try to unpack those in, in the, to, to, to translate them in human language. <laughs> First of all, what does critical geography mean? Or radical geography or what's the difference between the two? Critical geography means, well, different things to different people, but I generally take it to mean a form of geography, um, geography being a field interested in space and place, critical geography being an iteration of that that thinks um, seriously about positionality, about race, about class, about gender, sexuality, 
colonialism and empire. And for me, that is very justice-based and oriented towards producing change on the ground. But again, other folks might interpret critical geography differently, but that's how I generally tend to frame it. It's very, for me, informed by my background in feminist studies and in as much as feminist studies is concerned around situated knowledge production and around reflexivity um, and self-awareness and thinking critically about notions of objectivity and distance and proximity. It's a fascinating uh, domain or subject. Myself, you know, I'm, I work in research in physics related to renewable energies and stuff. And I'm actually trying to somehow move a bit in this uh, direction of intersection between physics and radical geography. What I really like, besides what you said, is that usually critical geography has this aspect of, let's say, activism. You know, it's not just a detached way of you know analyzing some other system which you are not a part of. And this is also something very attractive to me. You know. Yeah, I think that's for me too. That's what is at its core. I mean, historically, we can look at different ways that geography as a discipline has been used to produce various violent spatial futures, including those having to do with colonialism and uh, particularly those having to do with colonialism and empire building. So I find critical geography to be an exciting space to think about those histories critically and also to think about ways that spatial knowledge and spatial engagement can be used to produce other futures that are anti-racist and anti-capitalist and feminist and decolonial. So yeah, that's great to hear that you're also interested in being more involved in the discipline. Yeah. So you say that one of the basic dimensions or most important aspects for you of critical geography is this awareness of the positionality of the situatedness of the author or the researcher. If you can just talk a bit more about this, what does it actually mean? Because, you know, we try to, to make this podcast to be as educational, pedagogical, because people might not even know what situatedness means. And maybe just say a few words about this and why do you think this is important? And I, I read in your papers, uh, like a few things that, that I snippets uh, or ideas that I noted down here. You say that you are creating knowledge with and not for communities. And you employ the idea of thinking from place. Maybe try to unpack these. Let's see what they mean. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, over the course of many decades now, there have been different scholars interested in producing knowledge that is perhaps critical of certain forms of power and power structures, but that can sometimes still nevertheless be paternalistic in terms of framing the production of research for or about a particular community or communities that are targeted by said systems of oppression. And one of the things that feminist studies and, and critical geography alike, I think, implore us to do is think more about our own positionalities as researchers and who are we to produce knowledge for or about somebody else? And, and how might that sort of paternalistic approach to knowledge production produce its own violences and, and hierarchies? So, yeah, a feminist take um, and a critical take would be to think more about how one can produce knowledge in community with one's allies and peers and, and own communities so that, you know, I'm not just writing about some group of people that I'm not connected to, but that. I might be writing or thinking in community, in solidarity, and producing collective knowledge that can speak from personal experience or from relational experience. 
but isn't, you know, reproducing a sort of power differential that's been um, very entrenched, I think, in the social sciences in particular for a long time. Decolonial approaches to knowledge production would say the same thing, more or less. And there's one feminist science studies, indigenous feminist science studies scholar in the U.S., Kim Talbert, who writes a lot, again, about producing knowledge um, with and not for or about, in her case, indigenous folks who have been you know, bearing the brunt of settler colonialism for centuries. But we can think about what the sort of framework offers to different communities and different forms of scholarship in, in other contexts as well. Yeah, so that's some of what I mean by that. Yeah, I think for me, it's also important to uh, highlight that there's this a- aspect of being a good ally. But also by uh, acknowledging your positionality, uh, you also acknowledge the fact that uh, you know the production of knowledge is always uh, is it's always subjective. Mm-hmm. So the content of that knowledge is always you know affected by your position. So when it's uh, hidden or not stated, your position. You know, usually liberals do this. They they believe that the knowledge that they are producing is uh, objective, right? Yeah. And in fact, even the content of the knowledge is, is you know, affected. What you place uh, importance on, what aspects or kind of explanations you find, what causal mechanisms you, you define as more important, I think all of these are very much affected, right, by the... Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and there are ways to, to sort of trouble traditionally white Western heteropatriarchal understandings of objectivity and that, too, is one of the interventions that I see like, feminist studies having made over the decades. Um, Donna Haraway, in particular, has been, I think, crucial in thinking about how we don't need necessarily to understand objectivity as being produced at a distance, but how might we have objectivity produced in near close proximity um, to and with our own situated practices, and how might we even trouble what objectivity means in that case. Um, so. Yeah. Another important subject which you also engage with a lot and which is also a, a main subject which uh, lies, let's say, somewhere at the intersection of activism and research, right? So it's also a very hot topic to do research on, but it's also a very a location of uh, very intense you know, struggles in different communities around the world. So let's define a bit what gentrification means, although I think it's become quite a household term, but sometimes it's not used correctly. Or sometimes it's viewed uh, purely as positive, which is even worse. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I would say the utilization of the word has skyrocketed over the last decade or so, for sure. And again, it means different things in different contexts. It's a word that you know emerged in the mid twentieth century, um, but I think it, as it's become used as more of a, a household word. <laughs> change meetings and its geographies have continued to change as well you know it initially was used to describe the displacement of mostly like middle class folks in western urban centers as richer folks moved in i think today it's often used more to talk about ways that poor and working class communities of color are being squeezed out as as cities become richer and whiter but i i still do think that it is used more in Western cities to describe these processes than non-Western cities, although it is being used for sure. I know in Romania, people use it to describe similar processes. But I think it can get sometimes tricky to use one word to describe processes that are so different across the globe and in places that have very different histories to race and empire and land and land grabbing. Um, There's 
you know, there are some folks who are have been suggesting we we stop calling it gentrification and we think of it as, you know, ongoing instantiations of settler colonialism, for instance. But then others say, well, that negates the violence of settler colonialism as it happened and as it continues to inform our urban and, and also non-urban landscapes. And there are a lot of debates about using it as a term or not using it as a term. And urban studies um, and housing studies, those debates can often be quite recursive and take up a lot of (laughs) ink. But I think some of the debates are still very important in terms of thinking about the problematics of universalizing knowledge. And it's very important, of course, to think about um, what is global, what flows of capital become global, and how do they impact various places throughout the world in similar, albeit different ways. And yet, Also, what are those local practices we need to continue to think from the ground up and not just kind of come down with some sort of, you know, objectivity at a distance um, analytic. There's a piece in, um, I believe, in the journal City by Asher Gertner that I really liked called Why Gentrification. I'm going to paraphrase the name of the title of the article, but it's it's basically about why he thinks the the term gentrification fails in much of the world. And he goes into how histories um, of land tenure in a lot of different spaces in the global south, but also in what are now global east and, and also post-socialist spaces, those histories of land tenure and, and housing are so different than those in, for instance, like New York or London, which are two cities that have been sort of over-theorized maybe in terms of of gentrification. So how do we think about what's happening? Like, how do we think about, for instance, restitution evictions in Romania um, as part of local context of gentrification, but not as conflatable with what's happening in the Bay Area or New York, which is connected, but nevertheless very different. Applying this theoretical model of gentrification right uh, on different scenarios, it also makes you lose some information. Maybe it's not the right way to say it. I, d- I don't have the right vocabulary. But there's also interesting to see where their similarities exist. So for me, it's interesting. You know, some while ago, you suggested to me this book by Neil Smith, uh, The New Urban Frontier. I learned about gentrification from it. So thank you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see, for example, here in Timisoara, because I am from Timisoara, uh, which is kind of a small city on the global scale. But we also live in, you know, the... Romania is a post-socialist countries and the housing market it's influenced a lot about how the transition happened from state socialism to neoliberal capitalism and what so the, the situation couldn't be more different than the US for example yeah. but at the same time a lot of the dynamics and processes that Neil Smith uh, writes about and I think the book is about I don't know in the 90s when he wrote the book yeah 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 exactly so he's talking about processes that happened in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s, I guess, about that type of gentrification, or maybe earlier, I'm not sure. Uh, correct me if I say something stupid. Or... <laughs> I don't know. You're totally right. But, but it's, interesting. it's interesting how he says you know, there, there are some steps. Like, uh, first of all, you have a neighborhood which is historically neglected. The administration doesn't invest in it, so it becomes ever more degraded. Then uh, either the administration or companies start producing discourse, you know, saying that it's unlived country or uncivilized or new a new frontier. That's that's where the name of the book comes from. So it's like the Wild West or whatever. And this this happens here in Timisoara with this neighborhood, for example, which we are trying to monitor. Then you have you know uh, artists and galleries and whatever that start to move into the neighborhood. They're like spearheads for gentrification. Then everything else comes. So this is an interesting process which. 
although the the context is very very different these dynamics you can see them unfold now for example in Timisoara right yeah yeah no it is interesting and yeah in my time i mean more so in in Bucharest and Cluj but it was very interesting for me to see processes that seem to be unfolding in similar ways to changes that i've seen primarily in the bay area and in Cluj too you can see sort of the siliconization um, or these sort of western it companies coming in i know in Timisoara too um, also kind of getting wrapped up yeah in in context of gentrification so i think what's great about Smith's formulation is that it, you know, it, it sort of shows the impacts of global capital and also global imaginaries and, and aesthetics and understandings of value that are, you know, are cultural and also economic and, and in all of those in-betweens. But he kind of shows how those processes and, and values travel. And yeah, I think it's very important to track the similarities that we're seeing in different cities and, and the differences too. And I think it doesn't have to be, you know, this is gentrification or this isn't, but I think it's more like this is happening. We can call it gentrification, but we can't imagine that it's happening in exactly the same way as it might be happening in San Francisco, for instance. And at the same time, even in, um, I mean, this was uh, my friend Alex and I wrote an article last year, no, it's two years ago now, um, about the problems of even understanding racial dispossession and processes of, if we want to call them gentrification um, in Oakland, the problematics of reading those processes as synonymous with those in San Francisco, which, you know, San Francisco and Oakland are two big cities in California right next to each other, both of which have shared a lot of past together and a lot of people live in one city and work in the other. There's, you know, they're part of the same retro region. And yet there has been this move even in the Bay Area and in California, maybe the U.S. more broadly, to sort of read Oakland as following the same path as San Francisco in terms of gentrification, when in fact, even in like 2008 and nine, when the subprime mortgage crisis hit the U.S., Oakland was devastated much more than San Francisco. When those um, impacts still reverberate today and sort of get erased when we only look at Oakland as undergoing the same trajectory as San Francisco, which has more to do with the tech industry. And not that there isn't tech-induced gentrification in Oakland. It's just that there are other histories too, for instance, the foreclosure crisis. And if we just kind of read Oakland as another San Francisco, we don't see how um, those 2008, 9, 10 histories are still alive today and still very much impacting race and space and displacement today. So I think all of this just speaks to the need of really creating knowledge again from the ground up and in that sort of situated way. And also, I think there's this deep importance in learning from our friends and comrades and allies in other cities and creating transnational analyses and also, of course, international solidarity in fighting global capital. Well, we definitely agree on that. that. Maybe just continue a bit uh, on this direction of discussing why gentrification is, a, is not an appropriate model to apply everywhere. There's a bit I really love from your paper, something like uh, that applying it as a filter for interp interpreting urban geographies everywhere risks producing monolithic maps that fail to account for the ongoing his histories of racial violence that underwrites contemporary urban transformation. Maybe just uh, talk a bit more about this and what do you mean by the concept of de-racinated dispossession? Did I spell that correctly? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my friend and colleague Alex Worth and I wrote this paper on de-racinated dispossessions. 
the gist of the paper is that in this contemporary moment, Oakland is being read as San Francisco 2.0 and popular media accounts of Oakland gentrifying have neglected the very stark racial differences between the two cities during the foreclosure crisis, but also before that, going back centuries, arguably, but particularly, I would say, over the last hundred years or so. Race has showed up quite differently in the two cities. Um, Anti-Black violence in particular has has showed up differently. And so many accounts of gentrification in San Francisco do reduce gentrification as a phenomenon to the tech boom, the, the dot-com boom of the late 90s, and then the current tech boom of today. And of course, the tech boom is for sure um, to blame in, in terms of what's going on right now, but so are other factors as well. And while the tech boom has impacted Oakland, as I said earlier, you know, other histories impacted Oakland even more. And these histories are being erased when we understand Oakland today through the sort of popular narratives of it, again, becoming, some people call it the Brooklyn of the West or the San Francisco of the, the East Bay or, you know, but basically there are these, and we can even say this, right, with, with Cluj being the Silicon Valley of Eastern Europe, some people say, but yeah, what do these sort of metaphors these spatial metaphors and these spatial relationalities, what do they um, erase in terms of other histories? And deracination, we take to mean the sort of uprooting of local configurations of race and space from from their roots. So kind of really taking those out of context and, and erasing them. So I would say that we wrote that in this moment when we began to write that article in this moment when Uber, which is from San Francisco and headquartered in San Francisco, they were going to open up a new branch in Oakland, which actually never got opened up, but they were going to. And when that happened, people started um, asking the anti-eviction mapping project for data about the impacts of Twitter and Airbnb and Uber opening up in San Francisco as they had done you know, just a few years earlier. And there was this idea that we could predict what would happen in Oakland if we applied San Francisco data, data around tech and gentrification, if, if we could take that in San Francisco and then come up with some model and apply it on Oakland in order to understand what the impacts of Uber moving its headquarters here to Oakland would be. And in the mapping project, we were quite skeptical that this was the best way in order to fight Uber or that this was the best way to understand the impacts of Uber. Because while we knew that, of course, Uber moving to Oakland would indeed result in gentrification and evictions and rent increases, we knew that, you know, already Oakland had been going through extreme racial dispossession and rent increases and anti-Black violence for a long time. And we didn't want to just imagine that Uber would be suddenly the only reason why we would be seeing Oakland as a place of whitening and of gentrifying. So you are a co-founder of this project called the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, which you define as a critical cartography, data analysis, and digital humanities project. Let's translate those labels into human language. What, <laughs> if you? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we define the mapping project with a variety of terms, and sometimes, yeah, I know that they might be confusing. So we consider ourselves a, a critical geography project for sure, which I know we already talked about a bit. Um, also counter cartography or um, critical cartography, or some people say counter mapping collective. But I take all of those to generally refer to this field of producing maps critically and often to counter the violence of other maps that are being produced. 
at the same time, there's also this rich history in counter cartography and critical mapping of expropriating some of the geospatial techniques and technologies um, that have long been used to produce different forms of spatial violence, but expropriating those technologies to um, produce more emancipatory maps and, and therefore futures. So just to kind of unpack that a little bit more, um, you know, we can see today, for instance, in the Bay Area, um, there are a number of real estate speculators and developers who are constantly creating new maps of the region and rebranding certain neighborhoods in order to make them appeal more to wealthy people, white people, people moving to the region to work in tech, or maybe, you know, people who are moving to the region because it's considered really bougie, <laughs> whatever the, the reason might be. Um, we have all these these new maps. We have all these new data sets that are being used again by speculators to figure out where the best place for investment is or maybe which neighborhoods to, to start evicting in, to flip buildings and, you know, make fancy new condos. So while all of this is happening, we're using some of the same geospatial techniques like map making and uh, geospatial analysis, but we're using them to kind of counter the violence of the real estate industry and the development industry and to make maps that show where um, real estate speculators are investing in, but to fight back so we could organize campaigns against certain real estate speculators. Or we might look at all of the buildings owned by particular evictors so that tenants can connect with other tenants undergoing similar struggles and create multi-building solidarities and fighting developers or speculators. We also consider ourselves a multimedia and, as I said, digital humanities collective, meaning that we produce um, a lot of oral histories and video pieces and even murals and zines and different forms of text-based work um, in order to produce narratives and stories of neighborhoods that are quite different from those being produced by, um, again, by the real estate industry and by newcomers to the region who don't know the kind of deep neighborhood histories of certain places and don't know the various tenants who have been struggling for decades to remain housed and rooted in their communities. So in essence, we're producing counter narratives, counter maps, and different multimedia work um, in order to fight the forces of um, racial dispossession and gentrification and displacement. Yeah, I would just add the small interlude. I think it's a very powerful uh, idea to say that maps, which you would think about as some of the most objective things, you know, they are just basically representations of data. Mm-hmm. You would consider a map as, you know, very objective. But just to give an example of how seemingly trivial maps actually hide a lot of ideology and subjective knowledge, just think about the best example is the world map, yeah. which is uh, usually it's a Mercator projection uh, centered on Europe, which distorts distances and sizes. So it distorts the relative sizes of other places and continents and countries relative to European countries. Right. And also, you know, what is north, what is south is subjective also. So by putting uh, Europe in the north up, you and somehow you subjectively uh, give it more value. So by, by representing the map in this way, you give uh, importance, centrality to Europe and to the global north, right? Exactly, yeah. All of this in just the simplest thing, the representation of the world map. Right, exactly. There's so many examples of how maps were used in various colonial and imperial projects, you know, going back centuries to map land that was supposedly, you know, terra nullius and vacated of inhabitants and ripe for Western Europeans to take over and make theirs. And by 
you know, delineating land as vacant, Westerners used it as justification for colonization and then also for parceling out certain land and dividing it and creating these various grids that now traverse most of the world and definitely the U.S. and that defy, for instance, indigenous understandings of land and space and inheritance. So they've been, in that sense, weaponized or used as a weapon in order to claim space and, and dispossess people. I have another point to add here. Maps actually also obscure knowledge and basically they frame what's important. For instance, there was, I, I honestly don't remember where I know this from, so I apologize for that. The answer to most questions is Bookchin, so maybe that's... Uh... <laughs> if it's learning, that's probably true. <laughs> no, no, no. In this case, it's, it's definitely not Bookchin. No, it was the Yanomami people from, from the Amazon. Basically, they did kind of create maps, right? But they weren't so obsessed with, you know, properly charting out distances and whatnot. What they cared about was basically they, they created sort of like uh, ecological maps of the, of the landscape for things that mattered to them. Like, this is where this kind of plant grows this is where we can go fish this is where right uh, these kinds of animals live and whatnot so it was more of a relational map where distance wasn't represented then the, obviously the white man couldn't uh, understand such a map or couldn't even were baffled by the fact that they would create such gibberish in their views right, right. so it's uh, it's also basically frames you know what uh, your outlook and how you actually relate to to the world and what you look for in the natural world. Right, right, for sure. When we think of maps, we generally just think of Cartesian maps, and we generally just think of maps that, um, in, in which everything can be marked by a latitude and a longitude you know, point, and that's really just one way of mapping. And as you said, um, there are so many different ways to think about mapping that have different understandings of space and relationality and value. So there are maps that can be non-Cartesian and that can show relationships between different objects or visions or understandings of place that have nothing to do with the sort of the Cartesian grid that blankets the globe thanks to different histories of colonial map making and now GPS technology and, and all of that. I try to enjoy my home. I do what I can. Um, it's very difficult when that person is there and you know that what they want most in the world is to take your home away from you and doesn't really seem to realize that that is my home. And a lot of these landlords are like this. They act like it's their house and they're doing you a favor letting you live there. Got the eviction notice uh, a week before Christmas. So that was really... Yeah, it was such a shock. I mean, it's like, wow, it really is the holidays, you know, like, wow. So, uh, yeah, it put me into a tailspin, you know, and then um, just uh, I moved out, though, within the first three weeks of it. Yeah, because I deal with the anxiety and um, and then also just concerned about my dogs and stuff because Chopper has anxiety as well, like dad. <laughs> and then, so um, I just hustled and found an apartment within three weeks. I got my buyout. 
and um, and then we moved to Westland. Just within that first those first couple of weeks, when we got the notice, just seeing my neighbors just disheveled and scared and crying and terrified, I and mean, we were all feeling the same things. But what I think I've come to realize is that other folks um, had a little had the resources to be able to move out. Um, some folks didn't have children. Uh, some folks lived by themselves and, and you know, could find housing a little, um, a little easier. But I think also the folks that, were, that have, have moved um, don't have the same roots to the neighborhood that we did. Um, and that's why we were fighting to stay in our homes. In 2006, I was diagnosed with HIV, and a year later after that, I lost the job. I couldn't pay the rent anymore, and they had to kick me out, and that's when I found myself on skid roll, living for three and a half years. Oh. Once you become homeless and you hit skid roll, there's only one way to go, and that's up, and that's the choice I made. I had to go up because I couldn't go back down, and plus I've been 12 years clean of drugs, and I refused to go back to that level again. During that time, that's when I found my calling, because I like to help people, and that's when I first became a case manager. This discussion, it's been awesome so far. Let's just return a bit to the anti-eviction mapping project. Let's talk a bit about what was the context in which it appeared and how did you came to the idea to found such a project? So, yeah, we founded it in 2013 in San Francisco. Um, initially, it was just a few of us who were already doing housing organizing. And we we just noticed that members in our community, uh, neighbors, friends were being evicted at what seemed to be an increasing rate. But we didn't know where the evictions were happening like citywide, we need to select cases. And it seemed as though certain neighborhoods were being hit harder than others. And there was also this big mystery that, well, there were a couple of mysteries unfolding. One, we, it seemed as though evictions were happening in proximity to emergent tech infrastructure, particularly these, well, these things that we call Google bus stops, but basically the bus depots where Silicon Valley firms pick up their workers and allow them to reverse commute. Um, from San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley to Silicon Valley. Um, so we, it seemed as though areas surrounding these bus stops were experiencing higher rent increases and evictions. But we didn't know if that was true or not. And we wanted to figure out if it was so that we could potentially use that data in sort of fighting this this private luxury transportation inf- infrastructure that was put in place by Silicon Valley tech companies. Then there was the mystery of where the evictions are happening citywide. But then the the kind of third mystery, which continues for us to be an ongoing point of investigation, it is who the evictors are. And while it might seem easy enough to figure out who the evictors are, it's actually quite complex because so many of the evictions that have been going on really over the last decade in the Bay Area, but also beyond the Bay Area, this is the case in a lot of different places right now in the U.S. and and arguably in other countries too, though I'm not the expert on what's happening elsewhere. But so many of the evictors and speculators are evicting through these shell companies, these LLCs, limited liability companies, or LPs, limited 
partnerships. But basically, these shell companies that larger investment companies use uh, for tax purposes and economic purposes, but also for anonymity. So following, again, the foreclosure crisis, there was this surge of Wall Street investment company landlordism. So companies like Blackstone and Invitation Homes and these big generally Wall Street-based, but not not exclusively Wall Street-based, investment firms started buying up all these properties that had been foreclosed upon during the foreclosure crisis when predominantly homeowners of color lost their homes in the U.S. And of course, from Spain to the Amazon and beyond, you know, these companies have been wreaking havoc in various ways. But in the U.S., what happened was a lot of homes that had been foreclosed upon got bought up in foreclosure auctions by these investment companies through an array of different LLCs and shell companies. So they would buy up these properties and then convert them to rentals and rent them out. And a lot of tenants suddenly were moving into properties that were owned by Wall Street firms, but the tenants themselves didn't know that their landlords were Wall Street investment companies because of this weird, obscure network of shell companies. Like It's hard to actually connect the dots. And there's a lot of privacy law in the U.S. that enables these investment companies to maintain anonymity with their different shell companies. So at any rate, that started happening across the U.S. after 2008 in Oakland and Alameda County especially. But then a couple of years later in San Francisco, what started happening was San Francisco didn't undergo the foreclosure crisis in the same way. But instead, what started happening was these investment companies started landing. And instead of buying up homes that had been foreclosed upon and turning them into rentals, they started buying rent control properties, whole buildings of properties filled with tenants, and then evicting the tenants and then flipping the units and selling them as condos. So what we started seeing in San Francisco was that a lot of tenants were being evicted by these shell companies but didn't know necessarily who their landlord was. And so they didn't know how to organize campaigns against their landlords effectively. So one of the things we began doing was kind of connecting the dots and doing these these different sort of uh, geospatial and relational data merges in order to connect eviction data, parcel ownership data, and corporate entity data that we get from a variety of sources. And we're sort of in this ongoing quest how we make tools and resources in order to make that data more accessible and available. Right now, we're actually working on a tool that isn't public yet, but will be soon called a Victor book that is essentially a graph database that connects these different data sets and makes it so that We have an interface where you can look up a property or a shell company, a landlord, or even a neighborhood and start to understand all this this sort of weird, complex web of connections. And the idea is that with this knowledge, it's easier for tenant organizers and counselors and, you know, the housing justice movement more broadly to uh, organize effective campaigns and really target the speculators themselves. At any rate, we started doing this when we began as a project in 2013, and now in 2020, we're still trying to kind of get better at creating tools that do this because it is an ongoing and difficult problem. We we create a lot of web pages on particular evictors themselves, which, of course, they hate because they are trying to hide. And we list all the evictions they've done and all the properties they own. And um, sometimes we're able to use that as leverage when an eviction is going down, where we'll say, like, maybe we'll take this page down about you if you stop an eviction. More often than not, I think the information is just useful for tenants uh, so that they can connect with other tenants undergoing the same process by the same evictor. And we began, again, in the San Francisco Bay Area. We started making maps primarily in San Francisco because we had an easier time accessing San Francisco data than Oakland. But then a couple of years later, we were finally able to get Oakland's data and do similar work there. 
But we, in that process, learned also just how different the two cities are in terms of their own sort of data practices. And of course, they're different, as, as I mentioned already, you know, spatial and housing histories between the two. And then in 2017, we started chapters in Los Angeles and New York. So at this, we have three active mapping project chapters in the Bay Area, New York, and LA. Each chapter is quite autonomous. But nevertheless, we, we do share knowledge and resources and tools and do a lot of similar types of work. So in New York, uh, we've been able to also map all the worst evictors and create all these maps about each evictor. And a few months ago, we had this tribunal on evictions where tenants and all of the buildings owned by the worst evictors in New York got together and in a sort of mock ceremony put their landlords on trial. And of course, we didn't actually put the landlords on trial, but it was a way to bring people together and connect with each other. And we had a bunch of lawyers there who offer legal resources for tenants being evicted. And so we were able to connect tenants with lawyers who can help them fight back. We generally try to do work and make maps online that have impacts offline and that can bring people together in physical space. Your work is inspiring, really. I mean, I, I really admire what you do. And what's very important that the information, the knowledge that you produce is actually really helpful. It has uh, the effect of empowering the people involved, right? I saw, maybe talk a bit more about this. I, I remember reading about, uh, in one of your papers, about the case where uh, your maps were used in a town hall meeting, for example, by the tenants to to argue for their position. Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, no, sometimes our maps and data have been used in different town hall meetings and hearings. Um, the point for us is not to claim, like, ownership or proprietariness around any of the maps or data, but we generally always work with different community partners and different groups. And we ourselves don't do policy advocacy. Like we don't, I mean, a few times we've submitted data in as public testimony in different city council meetings, but more so than that, like different community partners and allies have used data and maps in their struggles to kind of show, for instance, the prevalence of evictions or the correlation between evictions and tech infrastructure. We were able to figure out like the length of uh, time that speculators generally own buildings before they evict them and, you know, found that, for instance, in, in San Francisco and similarly in L.A., actually, about 80% of evictions happen within the first five years of somebody owning a building, and about 60% happen within the first year of ownership alone. So that is a pretty stark data point or set of data points in showing how many evictions are being done, not by longtime landlords, but by you know real estate speculators who are speculating upon the value of a property once it's vacated of tenants. So that's been important in pushing for taxation on real estate speculation and pushing to change particular policies that make speculation and speculative evictions as tenable as they are for the real estate industry. It's interesting. In California, there are some statewide laws that supersede local ordinances in, in the different municipalities. And two of these statewide laws are ex extremely annoying and strong. And they're landlord laws. One was written in the mid-80s and one in the mid-90s. And in California, different cities got rent control in the late 70s and early 80s. And basically after that, rent control means that, you know, cities have generally certain protections in place around evictions. They vary city by city. And generally what rent control means is that rents don't go up more than a small percentage every year so that they can remain somewhat affordable. But after rent control was passed, a bunch of landlords were pissed off 
and drafted these two statewide laws that now supersede all the local ones. One's called the Ellis Act and the other's called Costa-Hawkins. Without getting into all the nitty and gritty details of these laws, what is important is that it takes tenant organizing across the state in order to push against them and in order to push for change. And so what we've been really seeing over the last few years in particular is this new statewide effort to repeal these laws and to build tenant solidarities regionally and statewide. Things have changed a lot over the last few years in terms of like these big renter assemblies happening across the state and different groups coming together in all sorts of new coalitions, which is really exciting. And so often what we'll do is just, you know, produce data or a map that can support some of the efforts already underway and already like in the works, really being led by groups all over the state who are very inspiring to us and who are excited to be in collaboration with. And they're really the ones pushing for the policy changes more so than us. We're just trying to support what they're doing. Related to this a bit about uh, being in a position of uh, support, there's an interesting point which you talk about in your papers about data protection, which I guess is a main principle of the project. You know, because you are, you are a researcher, so you, you need and want to publish papers. And you know, it's so important in this age of publish or perish. I feel this also in my own experience that you need to publish papers to keep your job in academia collecting data, interpreting data, usually you want to publish it, make it public. And uh, But sometimes that vulnerable, vulnerable, okay, I can't say this word. It makes people more vulnerable. Right. And sometimes, you know, if you want to be a good ally, then you actually protect some data. Uh, you do not make it public. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously we're in this age of, well, we're in an age of a lot of things, but open data is really you know, something that is important and great on a lot of levels. But when it comes to eviction data, it's really tricky because we know already the real estate industry is using eviction data in order to abet their processes of speculation, but also tenant screening. So tenant screening means basically digging up data on tenants and using that to basically give them a sort of bad score and therefore make it harder for them to rent uh, properties in the future. And there are a bunch of weird, very large scale, uh, basically data brokerage companies that specialize in this right now. So we, we, the last thing that we want is to produce data that can then be used to um, make it harder for tenants to rent in the future, or that could even be used against them in a court case with their landlord in the present. We've learned the hard way that landlords are very eager to use data to their benefit, even oral history data. There was a case once where the lawyer of a landlord found one of the oral histories we had produced online and decided to use um, information in that oral history against the tenant who we had interviewed in one of their court cases. So it's extremely tricky and it's often, I think, better to err on the side of safety. And when we do oral histories, we have this double consent process yeah, we make sure that tenants know that, you know, this interview will be public and we give them the option to anonymize their names or, or obscure their addresses if we embed the interviews in a map, different things like that. We've even offered the option of using one of those voice obfuscation technologies to kind of change their voice. But at any rate, that's in the realm of oral histories. But with just sheer eviction data, yeah, we, we don't want to just make it all public and downloadable but we do want to share it amongst our community partners and allies. And so we generally just have a policy where if somebody's in community with us and wants data, like we might share it, but make sure that certain information remains private and, you know, doesn't get shared. And we're, we're kind of constantly trying to figure out what the best way to do this is. 
well, what's also weird is that there are other groups that map evictions putatively for housing justice, but that actually don't always have the best analysis about what's going on. And there's this group called the Eviction Lab based out of Princeton, and they map evictions across the U.S. And they're led by this guy, Matthew Desmond, but he has refused to come out in favor of rent control and even recently supported Bloomberg, who is, you know, atrocious when it comes to housing. (laughs) And so it's like, we don't want to just, you know, share data with folks who might use it to support an analysis that we don't agree with. And what was really tricky about the thing with the eviction lab was that they didn't want to give us credit for the data and even wanted to some of our oral histories in their own sort of museum show. It was very strange. And then when we raised questions about data privacy, they decided instead to buy the data from one of these tenant screening companies and ended up paying one of these companies that does terrible things with data. But they bought the data for $100,000, so it kind of supported this company's you know industry and wealth accumulation. Then they published their findings online, which actually undercounted the amount of evictions by a third in California. So it made the problem seem less severe than it is. I could go on and on, but the point is, is that it's a weird moment in which it seems as though eviction data itself has become a commodity. And for us, the point isn't to capitalize upon it or to make it a commodity, but really to, I mean, for us, the goal is to stop evictions and, you know, not to like make ourselves famous or something like that for doing what we're doing. But we also don't want to sort of support cycles of commodification. So then it leads us to this weird moment of needing to maintain more privacy, even though we don't like the idea of privacy. So it's very weird. Maybe talk a bit about uh, the part of the project, which is called Narratives of Displacement and Resistance, and about uh, how and why you came to the conclusion that it's very important to record also not only data, you know, about material changes, flows of capital but also subjective histories and stories and narratives. So uh, we launched the Narratives of Displacement and Resistance basically a year after beginning the broader anti-eviction mapping project, um, in part because we realized that we were reducing really complex stories to, to Cartesian dots on a map and knew that you know for every dot that might represent an eviction, there was a much more complex history there. And so we wanted to start to trouble some of our own sort of reductive tendencies in, in map making to understand some of these narratives better. So we began producing oral histories with folks, most of whom were our, you know, friends and allies whom we knew were fighting evictions. We also wanted to record like different neighborhood stories of place and space that often get erased as areas gentrify and as folks are dispossessed. But then also we wanted to record stories of resistance. Because while everything that we're mapping often appears very, you know, sad and dystopic, um, there are points of resistance and there are wins and victories too. And so we wanted to share those stories. You know, wins and tactics for resistance can be inspiring for other folks too who are wanting to fight back. So we began doing that sort of work as well. And so we have a, a geospatial interactive story map online where we've embedded at this point hundreds of oral histories and somebody can kind of you know, listen to them one at a time. But we've also produced murals where we kind of reproduce the oral history map and feature maybe six or seven stories and have these call the wall features so that tenants can call a phone number and hear the oral history or part of the oral history. And we've worked with some folks to do light projections, like projecting different narratives on city walls at nighttime. We've also made at this point two zines that incorporate a lot of oral history transcription work and also submissions, we often have open calls and, and are able to 
you know, include other like poems and photographs and stories written by other folks in our community as well. And we have a book coming out in the fall of 2020 that will also have some narrative-based work, but also a lot of maps and pieces of artwork and other kinds of contributions. And that will come out with PM Press in October. So, well, Maybe uh, then when it appears, maybe it will be a good time if you accept to you know, make another episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, happily. Yeah, definitely. That could be fun. Okay. Well, maybe say a bit about, you know, you did the part of your PhD here in Romania. Do you want to talk a bit about that? What work you did here? Yeah, happily. Um, yeah, so my um, dissertation project, which I am now finished with, and I'm in the midst of trying to turn it into a book, but um, it's called Unbecoming Silicon Valley Techno-Imaginaries and Materialities in Post-Socialist Romania. And it does a lot of things. It's very much indebted to the different collectives that I was able to learn from while I was there including all the groups in the, the block, which includes you all. So thank you for that. And then also I was able to learn from folks who have been um, active in some sort of DIY tech stuff and folks who were part of both socialist and transitional technological kind of cyber worlds. But in large part, the project looks at the impact of Western companies, tech companies, but also Western understandings of privacy and property that were instilled in various ways following 1989 in Romania. And then I also look at, you know, sort of the return to pre-socialist understandings of us that, that we can see sort of reinstated following 1989 as well. So as an example, like I'm looking at socialist era factories that are now basically the sites of Western firms engaged in outsourcing tech labor and then how those processes contribute to local forms of racial dispossession and what we could call gentrification. But kind of as I was saying with Oakland, like while cities such as Cluj have been kind of rebranded the Silicon Valley of Eastern Europe in this process, I'm kind of studying how vastly not Silicon Valley they are and how we really need to understand socialist practices of computing both above ground and below ground and all of the different kind of forms of cloning um, and hacking um, and neighborhood network building and, you know, different infrastructural projects that really laid the ground for Western firms to kind of come in and take over. So I'm tracing those processes. I'm also looking a lot at how disproportionately Roma residents and communities are being evicted and pushed to wastelands and processes of urban renewal, as it's sometimes called, or revitalization, and how we can understand this as similar to processes of gentrification around California, Silicon Valley, but also we need to understand much older histories of anti-Roma racism in particular that go back to slavery and all of its aftermaths. So those are some of the things that I'm looking at in the dissertation. It's a lot. Yeah, maybe we will have the chance to expand on that in a future discussion, if you want, again. For sure, happily. Okay, well, you usually wrap up the discussion with the historic question of what is to be done in uh, some realistic utopian ideal future. How do you see things evolving? Maybe what are the struggles that we should keep an eye on and participate in? And also maybe if you have some book recommendations or some other struggles that you want to shed a light on, or we will link everything in the description of the episode. Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, well, I, I, I've been really excited about the work that's been coming out of this network called the Housing Justice and Unequal Cities Network that's based in UCLA, um, 
led by Ananya Roy, who's, I think, a brilliant person when it comes to thinking about these things. And I'm always quite excited about her work in general. But in this network, she's bringing together folks who are looking at housing injustice, but also fighting for housing justice in a variety of um, locales across the world. And and she's very much attentive in this network to the idea that um, things are not even in these different spaces. We can't imagine that what's going on in one country or city is the same as that in another. But what we can look at is the work of housing justice and housing justice is being formulated. And we can look at how we need to be in these international solidarity networks in our fights for housing justice as global capital is so global um, and has these very localized effects. So I really, I think that's so true. And that's where we need to, that's the work that we need to do right now. We need to continue the very local grounded struggles that we're already engaged in and find new ways to be in solidarity and fight with each other. And organize campaigns that can also be global. So if like Blackstone is evicting folks in, I don't know, in California, can we have folks in Barcelona do an action on their behalf and vice versa? And, you know, that's maybe already been happening a little bit with Blackstone, but Blackstone's only one of many global players and factors and forces. And I've been really interested in, you know, how do we think about maybe a more global fight against Airbnb, for instance, as it's been so destructive in so many cities across the world right now, and yet it's headquartered in San Francisco. And how can we disrupt its flows of capital and the different forms of evictions that it kind of gets entangled with in a variety of ways at the same time so that it really, you know, feels the heat and we can kind of change its accumulation of wealth and capital. Yeah. So those are just some ideas and thoughts. I'm all for international solidarity and networking. I think considering that the flows of capital, right, are global, we need to also think globally or somehow act globally as networks of groups and organizations. Okay, this was a very nice discussion. I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, It was fascinating to hear you you talk about the stuff you're passionate about and it's inspiring the work that you're doing with the AEMP. I look forward to repeating this discussion, uh, not repeating, but you know, having another discussion. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Of course. Thanks so much for being interested in talking about all this. And I mean, and thanks too for all the work that you all are doing in Timisoara and, and in Romania with the block too. And that's been so inspiring to me. Well, there's the thing with my father. My father has, is, uh, he's 82 years old. He's sick. He's a dialysis patient. And also one of the reasons that I, uh, I, I, dis- that I decided to fight is because his dialysis center is two miles away. I work two miles away. His doctor, primary doctor, is one mile away. So everything is here. Everything is in the community. If I say, well, I live, then I need to find a place that is close either here in downtown or if I find a new place, a new job, I need to find a job, a home, a hospital, a doctor, that everything is close by. Because my father gets sick often. He calls me like, look, you got to take me to the ER. It's easy for me to tell the manager, look, I got to take my father to ER. I'll be back in an hour or two. Right? If he's in the middle of the day, it's okay. It's easy for me to say, look, uh, 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 you know, I was at the ER last night. I got home at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'll be in late. If I have to drive an, half an hour or an hour away, I won't be able to say it, right? If my fight gets sick, I'll be like, okay, I'm leaving now. I get there when I get there. 
We live in LA, everybody knows the traffic, so you never know, right? So for me, it's like, everything is here. That was also the reason, it's like, I have to fight for this. It's a community in yeah. every way. Yeah. My name is Michelle Pierce. I am 44. I have lived in San Francisco my whole life. I was born on Potrero Hill. And then when I was almost five, we moved out here to Bayview, which is where we still live now. I am the executive director for the Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates, which is an environmental justice organization um, focusing on those places where social justice and environmental issues meet. There's a lot going on in these times around those issues, particularly in um, how poorer communities and communities of color are disproportionately impacted by environmental issues. We tend to either live in areas that are um, already marginalized or the assumption is we don't have a political voice. So when um, things that might compromise the environment are introduced for infrastructure purposes, um, they tend to end up in our communities. With the power plants and with the shipyard, history has a long arc. We fought really hard to get all of the PG&E plants in this area and in Dog Patch shut down as well. That, there were three of them in this area. There, every, everything that you can think of that is dirty or harmful happened probably in Bayview Hunters Point. We had really high rates of asthma, really high rates of breast cancer and other forms of cancer, prostate cancer, throughout the areas that were closest to those plants. And there was talk of expanding them and or possibly introducing some dirtier technologies to them. That was like one of the first major victories that environmental justice groups in San Francisco had was getting that cleaned up. Um, and they fought that issue for so long that they got very, very sophisticated. They were probably more savvy than the people they were fighting by the time they got the plants closed. They took those opportunities to educate themselves. So their knowledge, their understanding, and their expertise around these issues developed very quickly. So we're talking about these things that took 20, 30, 40 years. And at this point, the lived experience has the jargon down. They are almost as much experts now as the, the scientific, the legal um, experts that were originally weighing in. The most critical factor that helped get that, those power plants closed was passion of the community to see that happen, to really fight to make it happen. And as a result, of the passion persistence on the part of the community.
it has been a short but a very dense episode. Uh, many of the topics and terms which we have discussed might be new to some of the listeners, uh, but we believe that they are very important because they can provide uh, import, uh, valuable tools in our activism. Uh, in this period of great crisis, we are becoming painfully aware how vulnerable we are. But on a hopeful note, uh, against this background of general, generalized hopelessness, housing is emerging as a major location of struggle. There have been rent strikes in many places around the world, and there is also a major rent strike prepared for the 1st of May in the U.S. Many landlords are accepting rent cuts or suspensions. And we strongly hope that these struggles can grow into a global movement that could, in the end, raise an opposition to capitalism. It is a historic moment. Uh, read up on tenant laws, dare to make demands on your landlord, and join a movement to push back against the landlords and capitalists. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe, compañeros and compañeras. produce of the earth. As soon as the land of any country has all but become private property, the landlords love to reap where they never sowed.
What is this? Is it Mao or what? <laughs> what Mao? No, no, no. This is just, uh, you know, Adam Smith, uh, the father of free market capitalism. The father of free market.